0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books and Women's History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jane Semecka, Professor of History at Brookdale Community College. Today we'll be discussing a new book by Shannon McKenna Schmidt titled The First Lady of World War II, Eleanor Roosevelt's Daring Journey to the Front Lines and Back, published by Sourcebooks. Shannon McKenna Schmidt is also the co-author of Novel Destinations, a travel guide to literary landmarks from Jane Austen's Bath to Ernest Hemingway's Key West and Writers Between the Covers, the Scandalous Romantic Lives of Legendary Literary Casanovas, Coquettes and Cads. Shannon has also traveled the world and has written for National Geographic Traveler, Shelf Awareness and NPR. Shannon, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much for inviting me to talk about the extraordinary Eleanor Roosevelt. Yeah, so so what's this book about? This book, The First Lady of World War II, follows Eleanor Roosevelt on her journey to the Pacific Theater during World War II. She traveled for five weeks. She covered 25,000 miles. She went to Hawaii, Australia, New Zealand, through the South Pacific, and at her insistence into territory that was still under enemy air attack. Wow. So five weeks, right? It's a long, five that's weeks. a long That's a long trip, even for her. It is a long trip. Yes, at this point in her and Eleanor had been first lady for a decade. So she's a highly experienced traveler by this point. And yes, even for someone with her travel savvy, five weeks is a very long time to be on the road and going at the at the very fast pace that she did and traveling under wartime conditions. Yeah.
1: So how did your own experience as a world traveler?
2: influence how you wrote this book. I really connected with Eleanor Roosevelt, the traveler and the adventurer. And Eleanor's travels were one of the reasons that she was considered an unconventional first lady. Traditionally, first ladies stayed close to the White House. They primarily oversaw social functions. They didn't take an active act part in public life. And they certainly weren't out there traveling at all or you know, much at all or on their own. And but that wasn't going to work for Eleanor. She was not going to be confined to the White House. And she really created a unique role for herself that combined her love of travel, her wanderlust with her sense of social responsibility. And it's because of my love of travel that in large part is I came to write this book. I was reading a collection of Eleanor's column called My Day, a long-running syndicated newspaper column that she wrote. And there was a brief mention that she visited Australia while she was in the Pacific theater during World War II. And it was a brief mention, but it immediately caught my attention because I had recently been to Australia and New Zealand. And the first thought that struck me was amazement at the distance that she would have had to have traveled to get there and that she did it under wartime conditions.
1: Yeah, and some of the travel was not luxury.
2: <laughs> Could you talk was, about that a little bit? It, it was not luxury. So Eleanor flew on a commercial flight from New York to San Francisco, and at the time, it took about 20 hours. Uh, she They stopped to refuel the plane twice. So even getting across the country on a commercial flight in 1943 was, was fairly arduous in and of itself. Then once she reached San Francisco, she boarded a military transport plane. And she traveled in this plane throughout her time in the Pacific Theater. And inside the plane, it was bare bones. It was loud and rumbling. It was unpressurized and it was freezing cold. And she's on board sharing space with supplies and sacks of mail because she this was a regular flight of the Air Transport Command. And this is how she traveled for those five weeks. Yeah. And it
1: was and it was also secret, right? Can you talk a little bit about the secrecy of the journey
2: and the and the mission kind of her mission? Yeah. So for safety reasons, the trip was kept secret for the first 10 days that while Eleanor made her way from island to island through the South Pacific, and that was really to safeguard her safety. And then once once she reached New Zealand, it was deemed safe enough for the, the trip to be known and news broke. And it was funny because reporters, there wasn't so much surprise that she turned up on the other side of the world, but that it had been such a well-kept secret. Yeah, they they do a pretty good job considering how how
1: recognizable she was.
2: Exactly. And when she was on the commercial flight from New York to San Francisco, that would not have raised any eyebrows because she was a very frequent traveler, a frequent flyer. So that would not have raised eyebrows. Um, but the media did speculate as to why she didn't accompany FDR to uh, a world leaders' conference in Quebec. So there, so there was some um, hints, you know, but no reporters delved any deeper. And she actually used her column My Day to help maintain the secrecy of the trip so for the first 10 days she had pre-written columns and the byline listed her location as being at home in Hyde Park yeah and you know it's interesting in talking about her as a traveler too part of the reason why she
1: has the opportunity to do this kind of travel is because of FDR's uh, paralysis and yes. so you know that's sort of it's a, it's an interesting um, issue in their relationship and how something as tragic as having polio and and being paralyzed from the waist down
2: led to her having this freedom. Yes, and FDR was enormously supportive of Eleanor's travels. I I believe that he knew that she needed this personally, but he also benefited from it because she spent her decade as First Lady crisscrossing the country, inspecting New Deal initiatives, seeing and meeting people, gathering information. And that information she used to exact change either through her own means or providing it to the president and his policy advisors so he did benefit from her travels um, but i I do think that he also knew that she needed this personally and this relationship that that they developed began when he was governor of new york and he and eleanor would travel together to state-run facilities and he could drive around the grounds but yes because of his um paralysis from from adult onset polio, he would send Eleanor inside to do the inspections um, at, at these facilities. And he really, she talks in her, in her autobiography about how he really schooled her to, to do reports and how her reports at first were unsatisfactory to him. And so, so it's something that that they had done together even before their time in the White House.
1: Absolutely. So interesting. And so there are many books about Eleanor Roosevelt. So what does your book add to this canon of books about Eleanor Roosevelt?
2: Well, this there are many, many, many books on Eleanor Roosevelt. It's true. Um, and yet, even in her, her biographies, they generally only spend a few pages talking about her trip to the Pacific. And it's a five-week period. And in the large the larger scope of Eleanor's full, rich, accomplished life, this five-week period just tends to get overshadowed. And yet it had an enormous impact on her. Early on in the research process, I came across something that she wrote in one of her autobiographies six years after the trip to the Pacific. And she said, the Pacific trip left a mark from which I think I shall never be free. And I found that statement powerful and haunting, and that she said it so many years later, and it really compelled me to uncover what she experienced during those five weeks in the Pacific. Yeah, the, uh, and somebody who had experienced so many different things in her life,
1: you know, she was certainly not unsophisticated, so that, that her, her, she left you that breadcrumb in her own writing, that's terrific, and, you know, I think that Instead of having to read, you know, a cradle to grave uh, series of books or long volume of a biography that you really are able to incorporate so many different aspects of her life into this one five week period. It's really terrific. And she's usually described as shy. And that's always, you know, the sort of the traditional description of her as a shy person but this story shines light on some different aspects of her personality could you talk a little bit about that
2: well one of the things that that I do love about Eleanor is she's very honest in her autobiography and she talks about how she had to overcome she had to just had a childhood full of fears she had to work to overcome her fears um, fear of the dark fear of displeasing people and she also had a fear of public speaking and in 1920, FDR was the the VP candidate on a presidential ticket and was unsuccessful, but Eleanor joined him on the campaign trail. And one of FDR's advisors, Louis Howe, took notice of Eleanor. And at this point, she's kind of bored on this campaign train. She thinks that her role is just to sit there with an adoring look on her face, staring at her husband while he gives a speech. At this point, um, it's, it's not proper for women to speak to the media. But Louis Howe takes notice of Eleanor, and he really helps her um develop a public speaking presence and he especially looked to Eleanor after FDR developed polio to get out there give speeches be involved in in New York state politics with the Democratic Party to keep the Roosevelt name in the public in the public eye and so she the Eleanor that we come to know really really went on a journey to to become to become the person that that we know of her today. Yeah, she really does evolve as a person
1: and I you know I think the other thing that I was really struck about in terms of some new information is the fact that she was quite even though she you know she always was just had such grace and she's a bit of a daredevil. Can you talk a little bit and you really opened the book with this you know, and it's very impactful in terms of where the
2: book goes. So can you talk a little bit about her, her wild side? Her wild side. She, she talks about how she developed. She, she thinks she got her spirit of adventure from her father. And she loved travel, yes, to gather information, but it also tapped into her adventurous spirit. And she was actually an early advocate of commercial air travel at a time when it was thought that only the most courageous or athletic people were fit to fly. And one of the things that I did a deep dive in my research to try to find out was when she took her first flight. And she actually took her first flight in 1929 while she was the First Lady of New York State. And a company that manufactured aeronautical equipment asked her to christen one of their research planes. And she agreed on one condition. She said, no flight, no christening. And she took her first flight that day in a 20 minute ride in the skies over Albany. So she loved she loved travel for for the adventure that it that it gave her as well.
1: You know, and you also talk a little bit about Amelia Earhart and how they knew each other. Eleanor Roosevelt knew Amelia Earhart. And I was just thinking when you were speaking about her love of flying, that Amelia Earhart had been lost in the Pacific. Do you think that had any bearing on her thoughts? Do you think she you know, any thoughts about do you think Eleanor thought, oh I'm going
2: to where Amelia Earhart disappeared. And Eleanor and Amelia were, were very close friends. And when Amelia disappeared in this in the Pacific, Eleanor wrote about it in my day, and you know how it was a very heartbreaking experience for her. And I I was wondering that as well, whether she thought about Amelia. And I I never came across anything in her writing, but I have to think that at some point. She must have thought about Amelia, especially when she talks in, in her letters and autobiography about when the transport plane is taking off from San Francisco around midnight. So it's dark, and they head out over the vast expanse of the Pacific, and how it's thrilling for her, but but also also um a little nerve-wracking for her as well. And so I think at some point she must have thought about her her great friend amelia earhart yeah and i was thinking about
1: even the scene that you you paint so beautifully of like you know landing on christmas island this little tiny island um and it's like a speck in the pacific ocean and finding it and locating it and landing there so there's you know there was a a good deal of danger but i guess maybe eleanor also inherited like you said some of that roosevelt pluck and uh teddy roosevelt's children her teddy roosevelt was her uncle teddy roosevelt's children were sort of known for you know their you know their antics (laughs) uh and teddy roosevelt with his you know his courage and his interest in the wild and and being a uh, a rough rider and things so i think that she definitely taps into some of that in in this and i love that you know i love to you know make her more three-dimensional uh, than just this shy woman who kind of comes out of her shell uh, that she uh, that she had this uh, this drive uh, and this love of adventure herself um, so why did she want to go to the Pacific theater in 1943 you know what was her what do you think she was her mission was
2: Eleanor had been, there, there were several reasons why she went to the Pacific she was enormously driven to contribute to the war effort. And she especially felt the sense of obligation toward this generation of young men who were being sent into battle and who were bearing the brunt of the war. And a primary reason for the trip was to thank U.S. troops for their service, thank them herself, thank them on behalf of the president, and to build morale. And in all throughout the five-week trip, she addressed more than 400,000 troops. The trip was also an informal diplomatic mission to allied nations, Australia and New Zealand, and to see the war work that women were doing in those countries. And because she's Eleanor Roosevelt, she added even more onto her plate by going as a representative of the American Red Cross, and she inspected the organization's facilities in the region. And on a larger scale, there was another reason for the trip. By the summer of 1943, the tide was turning in the Allies' favor in Europe and the Pacific. And Eleanor felt that people on the home front were overly optimistic about the war's outcome and that they were becoming dangerously complacent. There were strikes at war production factories across the country. People were complaining about food rationing and shortages. And this trip would link the home front and the fighting front reminding the nation that they couldn't give up on their duties until the war was won, and that any slackening risked the lives of the men who were fighting on these distant battlefields who needed the supplies. And also, Eleanor was was very forthright with the American public during this time, and she reminded them that winning the war was the way that their loved ones would come home. Yeah.
1: And so how did how what were the reactions to her when she the reaction in the press and the reaction of the soldiers and the commanders?
2: Well, pretty much everything that Eleanor did generated controversy and she had her supporters, her detractors, and the Pacific trip was no different. Um, newspaper editorials commented. People wrote letters to to their newspapers for and against Eleanor and the trip. Um, Congress was talking about it. There was a lot of a lot of controversy in support and, like I said, um, against what she was doing. Um, in terms of her being in the Pacific, some people, again, amongst the military, um, the military commanders. Most of them were like, what is she doing here? Um, Why is she here? And but very telling about the impact of Eleanor's trip was the reaction of Admiral William Halsey, who was commander of the South Pacific forces. And he was against Eleanor's trip to the Pacific. He didn't like it. He liked her. He he had very great regard for her personally. He didn't like VIPs coming through his area, taking his focus away from the war, especially because they were usually, he thought they were superficial PR junkets. Well, Admiral Halsey ends up completely changing his tune about the impact of Eleanor's trip to the Pacific. And he ended up saying later on in his autobiography that of all the people, all the civilians who came through his area during the war that nobody did more good than Eleanor. And ultimately what I think it came down to is that morale wins wars and he could see the uplifting effect that her presence had on the troops. And he was especially impressed at how she went bed to bed in hospital wards. She walked miles and miles of hospital wards during this trip, going bed to bed to speak with the wounded servicemen, offering words of comfort or a joke. And that very much um, impressed him.
1: She also was very generous in offering the wounded uh, to bring messages home, you know, would you like me to tell, you know, contact your family on your behalf? And that was very touching. The practice
2: she began in Great Britain was to keep logbooks of the wounded servicemen that she met, uh, his name, his injuries, where he received them. And yes, the name of a family member that she could contact after her return. And Weeks took letters to get to the Pacific and back. So to have recent firsthand news of your loved one from the First Lady of the United States was very, very extraordinary. And she did contact the families. And there's one anecdote that I that I like. Um, she did call up one serviceman's girlfriend who hung up on her because she didn't believe it was the First Lady calling and she thought she was being pranked.
1: That's funny. I, I wanted to read uh, one of the sections uh, from page 202 in the book, which is, uh, it's a really beautifully uh, evocative piece here so she was on christmas island and um it describes uh the injury and her her comforting uh soldier quote during the maneuvers the young man had been pinned beneath an overturned tank for an hour and half fully conscious the entire time before the vehicle was listed from his body He later awoke in the hospital to learn that one of his legs had been amputated. Even with blood transfusions and other treatment, infection set in and his temperature shot up. Doctors believed he was slipping, losing his desire to live, which was jeopardizing his recovery. Eleanor assured him that he would get well. Yes, ma'am, he demurled politely. He He murmured politely. Where is your home? asked Eleanor. Brooklyn, he answered in the same listless tone. Is there a wife or a mother waiting for you there? She inquired. My mother, he whispered. Would you like me to see your mother when I get back and tell her that I've seen you? The boy's face lit up and he turned toward Eleanor. Would you do that? Eleanor assured him that she would on one condition. He had to try to get well so that she would bring good news to his mother. I will get well, Mrs. Roosevelt, he promised. Eleanor held his hand for a moment before leaving. I felt so sure that he would keep his word that I was almost happy as I climbed into our plane, she recalled. He kept his word, and so did she, meeting with his mother and siblings at her New York City apartment. And I think that really encapsulates for me her great skill, um, the the ability to connect with people, her kindness, her warmth, uh, and... I have personally read a lot of her letters myself in my work but she had it that ability to connect.
2: Yeah and and I the story, the example um that that you read aloud that is one instance of many on this trip that really shows how she cared about the servicemen on an individual level. This wasn't abstract for her, she really did care. She also had four sons in the military on active duty. So she knew, and she talks in in her autobiography about how each time she said, goodbye to her son. She didn't know if it would be for the last time. And she really was very emotionally devastated at what was being done to this generation of young men. And she talk, She was a class act going through the hospital wards, but she talks about how inside she was burning with resentment at, at all of the, the suffering that these young men were going through. And, and the other thing you mentioned is, is her ability to connect with people. And that was one of her great skills um, she just, whether she was down on a coal mine, talking with coal miners about working conditions or at Buckingham palace with the king and queen, she just had this extraordinary ability to connect with people because she cared. And that to me is one of the things about Eleanor is she didn't have to do a lot of the things that she did. She did it because she cared about people. She cared about making life better for people and it's one of the things she's doing during World War II is helping the nation guiding them during the war. She's doing things like um because of advances in science and medicine, if if a soldier did not die outright in battle, it meant that he was probably going to live. It also meant that there would be a great number of disabled servicemen coming back and Eleanor one of the things that she did was help prepare the nation for this and advise them on how to treat these, these men. And that's one of the things, I, I think that her um, leadership during World War II maybe isn't that well known and, and recognized. And it's one of the things that I tried to bring out in the book. She talks about things like, don't shy away from talking to your serviceman when he comes home about his experiences. Um, unfortunately, I don't, think that that was probably done enough. Um, She encouraged people to, she encouraged women to join the defense industry. She encouraged people to donate to the Red Cross Blood Bank, which was a new nationwide program at the time. And the blood was turned into dried plasma and shipped to the front lines where it was kept in foxholes for ready use. So she's doing all of these things to, to really help guide the nation during World War II. Yeah, and that's really
1: another thing that really helps her, I think, to overcome any fears that she had, uh, this incredible sense of service, this responsibility and duty to serve the country and to serve the the people individually, um, no matter who they were. So she talks to the wounded in the hospitals, but there's also some incidents while she's in this five-week uh, trip where she spoke to women and women's groups. And also, there is also some incidents that involve African-American soldiers and race. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about those two, those two segments of the population in uh, the Pacific.
2: And those two segments illustrate the two pronged mission that Eleanor has while she's in the Pacific. She is um, buoying morale She's encouraging people to see the war through. So let's get the job done that we have to do now. But she's also looking ahead to peace and after the war. And she really encouraged women to be involved in civic life after the war and to to play a part in their nation's fate and not let men alone determine what was going to happen. And so she's she's telling women this as she travels throughout Australia and New Zealand And she tells them as she goes to see the war work that they're doing in in factories, in in, um, the armed services, things that women have like the United States had never done before. And just as they broke new ground helping to win the war, she wanted them to break new ground by helping to keep the peace after the war. And similarly with race, when she went to England, the Secretary of War asked FDR to ask Eleanor not to mention race while she was in Great Britain. He didn't want any anything, you know, stirred up in, in, the, in the military or and or have people in the United States find out that. Black servicemen were were treated well in Great Britain. So a year later, she go, that trip was a year before the Pacific. A year later, she's in the Pacific, and she does address race, and she makes sure to do that. She has her photo taken with Black troops. She makes sure to speak with reporters who work for um, Black publications. Um, she addresses race in a speech before she leaves Brisbane, because this is very important because why go through the war? Why fight the war if we can't have peace and better conditions for everybody after the war? So all of that is is also encapsulated in this trip. And that's one of the neat things is it shows stuff on a large scale of what she's doing but also then we have those very specific examples like her interaction with the servicemen, all of which was important to her. Yeah, so, so on the very personal, one-on-one level,
1: but also writ large. And so that's what I love about the title too, To the Front Lines and Back, because the idea of what happens after the war, as you mentioned, and so this, this trip to the Pacific for Eleanor Roosevelt leads her to be uh, important during the war, but also in the future, she changes history as a result. So maybe you can talk a little bit about how this five weeks in the Pacific changed her and change. well, you already kind of talked about how it changed her, but how it changes her and changes history.
2: So Eleanor was, I, I think I said earlier, that she went nonstop for the five weeks. She refused to, to slow down. And the trip very much impacted her physically and mentally. She lost 30 pounds while she was overseas. And when she came home, she fell into a deep depression, just haunted by all of the suffering she had witnessed, the continued bloodshed and dying. And yet it made her even more determined to advocate for legislation for servicemen and also to work for peace and to maintain peace. And within this trip, we can also see the seeds of her later work with the United Nations. And when she was in Australia, the mayor of Rockhampton told told her, he said, I would love to see you at the peace table. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who holds this opinion. And because of circumstances with FDR's um, unexpected death, she actually does end up going to the United Nations. And on, on the global stage. Yeah, and can you talk a little bit about the GI Bill
1: too? I mean, I, I kind of like that as a coda uh, to this
2: story too. Yeah, so with all of her conversations with servicemen in, in Red Cross clubs and mess halls throughout the Pacific, The things she heard most were that they needed supplies to win the war and they wanted opportunities for jobs and education when they returned. And Eleanor had been advocating even before this trip for legislation for servicemen, because it needed to be passed immediately and not after the war, because there were already a great number of men who were already returning. And there was one serviceman who wrote to her and she shared this in my day. And he said that they weren't afraid of being killed or maimed. What they were afraid of is that when they finally returned home and began piecing their lives back together, that they would be made to feel like suckers for the sacrifices they had made. And Eleanor used her public platforms. She had this amazing outlet to communicate with the American public, and she used these platforms to help bring pressure to bear on Congress. And that was one of her her great contributions uh, in getting Helping with with the GI Bill because she really wanted to see these servicemen supported for the sacrifice that they were making. And the GI Bill was passed into law um, the next year in 1944. Yes, and it, and you know, in the post World
1: War II world in the United States, it makes such an enormous change in encouraging people who were never going to go to college to get that education. In the uh, post 1945 America, and so it's she's the the book is so beautiful because it takes this five week period of time, but it weaves in all these larger themes, and so I really really enjoyed it. And I encourage everybody to to read it. I think you'll all really enjoy it. I want to thank Shannon McKenna Schmidt for joining me on the show today and for discussing her new book, The First Lady of World War II. Eleanor Roosevelt's Daring Journey to the Frontline and Back, published by Sourcebooks. Until next time on New Books in Women's History, this is Jane Semecka. Keep reading.